0: Okay, Dreamers, this is the fourth and final part of our series examining the possible wrongful conviction of death row inmate Kevin Cooper. We left off last time with Judge Fletcher's scathing breakdown of all the shady things that went on within the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department to make Kevin Cooper the murderer of the Ryans and Christopher Hughes, and to keep him the murderer, seemingly at any and all costs. Picking up in Fletcher's report from where we left off, and we're almost done. I know it's taking a long time, but this is really important information. You know, it kind of feels like, it feels like the Sheriff's Department never thought anyone would examine every single aspect of their investigation into this case. That someone would go through it with a fine-tooth comb and puzzle piece together everything they did in order to expose what essentially was and is a conspiracy to frame Kevin Cooper for four murders and one attempted murder that he did not commit. So, Judge Fletcher addressed those who concurred with Kevin's denial and their understanding or lack of understanding of why he dissented. He wrote that those in concurrence not only misunderstood his dissent, but they also make incorrect and misleading statements about the evidence in the trial record and they mistakenly state and believe that the evidence of Kevin Cooper's guilt at trial was, quote-unquote, overwhelming. Fletcher said, The concurrence argues that I am merely rehashing evidence and issues that have long been known to everyone, and that I have improperly marshaled the facts in the light that is most favorable to Kevin Cooper. In part, this is a legal argument, contending that Kevin has not satisfied the standard for a second habeas petition. In part, this is an argument almost invariably made in long-running criminal cases, contending that so many courts have gone over this case so many times that we can be confident that justice has been done. On the contrary, there are two important claims based on newly available evidence in Kevin's current application for habeas corpus, which, streamers, if I forgot to go over... Is a court order for Kevin to be allowed to go before a judge and have it be shown that his imprisonment is legit, basically. He keeps getting denied. Both claims Kevin is making satisfy the requirement to be granted habeas corpus, and both claims seriously undermine any confidence that justice has been done. The first claim is that the state introduced false evidence. The district court was ordered to test Kevin's blood on the t-shirt for EDTA, and it In Fletcher's words, flouted or ignored, disobeyed, defied that order. If the testing had been done for EDTA, there would likely be important evidence of tampering on the part of the state or individuals acting on behalf of the state. Even based on the EDA testing that has been done so far, there is strong evidence that Kevin's blood was planted. Furthermore, new evidence of tampering appeared during the district court hearing when it was discovered that vial VV-2 contained the DNA of two or more people when it should have only contained Kevin Cooper's. The district court refused to acknowledge the significance of this new evidence and refused to allow any investigation into the circumstances that might have led to the blood of a second person being placed in vial VV-2, thereby increasing the likelihood that the state presented false evidence at trial. If further EDTA testing was performed, that would increase the likelihood even more. The false evidence at trial includes Josh Ryan's two recorded statements, the state's analysis of the blood contained in A-41, the ProKED shoe prints purportedly found in the Ryan and the Lee Slang houses, The cigarettes and tobacco purportedly found in the Ryan station wagon and the hatchet, sheath and button purportedly found in the bedroom of the Lee Slang house. The second claim is that the state failed to reveal exculpatory evidence in violation of Brady. The failure to reveal the prison warden's information about the shoes issued there not being prison only shoes. The failure to turn over the report showing that Deputy Schreckengost approved Deputy Eckley's disposal of Lee Furrow's bloody coveralls. The failure to turn over daily logs showing that the Sheriff's Department took into custody a blue t-shirt that possibly had blood on it. And the failure to disclose that there had been a report to the Sheriff's Department shortly after midnight on the night of the murders that a white station wagon with wood sides was carrying three young males. If these claims are valid, then Kevin Cooper has a newly available claim of innocence. Once such a claim of innocence is properly before the district court, all of the evidence in the record must be considered, including all of the evidence previously known to the parties. Rather than, quote, improperly marshalling the evidence in the light that is most favorable to Cooper, I have described the evidence scrupulously and at length. Then there is the issue of incorrect and misleading statements. The concurrence made the incorrect and misleading statements about the evidence in the trial record. And the concurrence is referring to the justices who concurred with the denial of the habeas motion and agreed with the denial. These are some of the misleading statements that their decisions were based on. One, that Kevin Cooper admitted to being in the Lee Slang house within an hour of the murder. This statement is incorrect. Sunset on June 4th, 1983 was at 7.59 p.m. Kevin testified that he waited until dark to leave the Slang house and that he left the house right after finishing a phone call from his former girlfriend, Diane Williams. Phone records show that the call to Diane Williams ended at 8.30 p.m. It is impossible to fix a precise time for the murders, but it is likely that they took place quite later that night. The Ryans and their house guest, Christopher Hughes, had gone to a barbecue that evening. According to a neighbor, they returned to the house sometime between 9 and 9.30 p.m. Josh recounted that after the return to the house, he and Chris stayed awake talking and looking at magazines while his father stayed up watching TV. And Josh recounted that he and Chris were asleep when they were awakened by a scream. 2. The concurrence states that a blood-stained rope similar to the one in the Ryan's driveway was found in the Lee Slang house. This statement is highly misleading. They were two different ropes. One was in the driveway of the Ryan house. The other was in the closet of the hideout room in the Lee Slang house. The party stipulated that one of the ropes had a center cord and the other did not. 3. The concurrence states that there were signs of blood in the bathroom. This statement is highly misleading. A large horizontal band on the side of the shower in the bathroom of the hideout room tested positive when sprayed with luminol. For reasons explained above, the likely basis for the positive test is the bleach used by Catherine Bilbia in cleaning the shower. 4. The concurrence states that there were hairs consistent with the victims in the drain in the Lee Slang house. This statement is misleading. The hairs found in the drain were examined for shape and color only. They were never subjected to mitochondrial DNA testing. Further, we know that the Ryan children's maternal grandmother had owned the Lee Slang house a few years before and that the children stayed with her in the house. Josh specifically testified that he had taken showers in the house. 5. 5. The concurrence states that the prosecution never suggested that the pro were only distributed to prisons. This statement is incorrect. In its opening statement to the jury, the prosecution emphasized that the shoes were supplied strictly for prison use within the state of California and were unavailable for retail sales in California. Michael Newberry, a Stride Right executive, then testified at trial that the pro were only sold to prisons and institutions. In its closing statement, the prosecution again emphasized that Kevin Cooper wore a pro-kid tennis shoe, a tennis shoe that you can't purchase in a store anywhere in this country, a tennis shoe that is manufactured only for institutions, a tennis shoe as this which was sent to state prison in Chino. Mike Newberry knows that these aren't sold on the street, the prosecution said. We know this is not true. Six. The concurrent states that Kevin Cooper had a prison issue jacket with buttons like the button found on the rug in the bedroom of the Lee Slang house where he stayed. This statement is highly misleading. The problem lies in its use of the word quote-unquote like. As explained above, the button found in plain view near the closet in the hideout bedroom was probably planted by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. One of the reasons for believing that the button was planted Was that it was not the same color as the buttons on kevin's prison jacket the button found in the bedroom was green and would have come from a green prison jacket there is uncontradicted testimony at trial from kevin as well as corroborating testimony from a prison official that kevin had a brown or tan prison jacket seven the concurrence states that kevin cooper's expert agreed that the person who deposited the tiny blood spot known as A-41 on the wall of the hallway in the Ryan's house, was African-American. This statement is highly misleading. Kevin's expert, Dr. Edward Blake, testified at trial that the results obtained from blood spot A-41 indicated that the blood in the spot came from someone of African-American descent. However, when he so testified, Dr. Blake was relying on tests performed on A-41 by San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department criminologist Daniel Gregonis, as discussed above, there is a strong likelihood that Gregonis falsified the results of that test. During trial, Kevin Cooper's counsel forced Gregonis to admit that earlier in the trial he had repeatedly testified untruthfully about his test results for A-41. Judge Fletcher next discussed the incorrect statement that the evidence at trial of Kevin Cooper's guilt was overwhelming. The concurrence embraced the opinion of the three-judge panel denying Kevin's application for habeas corpus. The last paragraph of that opinion states that the evidence of Kevin's guilt was overwhelming. This is incorrect. In fact, the evidence of Kevin's guilt at trial was quite weak. This weakness led to a violation of Kevin's constitutional rights to due process. The evidence against Kevin at trial was so weak that his counsel thought that there was a good chance the jury would acquit him outright. The trial judge indicated that in his view, the evidence merited a second degree as well as a first degree murder instruction. He said just before the end of trial, just for you to chew on, it appears to me that we are going to have instruction on murder one and two, but not manslaughter. The judge tried to persuade Kevin's attorney to accept the second degree instruction, saying that omitting a second degree instruction may well be to your detriment. They could only find first degree possible. Otherwise, they might find only second degree. But because the evidence against Kevin was so weak, Kevin's attorney thought it was worth a gamble. In order to eliminate the possibility of a compromise verdict and to increase the chances of acquittal, Kevin's attorneys refused to accept a second-degree murder instruction. They wanted the jury to make their decision based on the testimony. It's either first-degree or it's nothing. The instructions that went to the jury contained only a first-degree murder instruction, The jury deliberated for seven days before returning a guilty verdict and deliberated for four more days before returning a death penalty verdict. Many years later, five of the jurors wrote to Governor Schwarzenegger asking that he grant clemency. One of those jurors wrote, There are so many unanswered questions that we may never know. Why did Josh not recognize Mr. Cooper? Why were there no fingerprints found where evidence showed that there should have been? Why wasn't information about the station wagon followed up on? Why weren't the three Mexicans located and interviewed? Why was so much blood was only one drop of Mr. Cooper's blood found? Why did the prosecution cover up evidence? Why wasn't the jury shown the photograph of Jessica Ryan clutching hair? Why wasn't the hair tested? Why wasn't the jury told about the convicted murderer's bloodied coveralls turned into police? Why did the police destroy those coveralls? Why wasn't the found beer can ever tested for saliva? These are just some of the many questions I have had over the years. Judge Fletcher wrote, Doug, Peggy, and Jessica Ryan and Chris Hughes were horribly killed. Josh Ryan, the surviving victim, has been traumatized for life. The other members of the Ryan family and the surviving members of the Hughes family have also been traumatized for life. The criminal justice system has made their nightmare even worse. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department investigators were confronted with a horrifying multiple murder, far worse than any that had previously occurred in the county. They had an obvious suspect an escaped prisoner who stayed for two days at a house 125 yards away from the murder victims. They were under heavy pressure from the news media from the very first moment of their investigation. They drew what seemed at the beginning a sensible conclusion that Kevin Cooper, the escaped prisoner, was the murderer. They drew that conclusion by the end of the first day of their investigation. And from that time forward, they organized their investigation around it. Once the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department drew that conclusion, they manipulated and planted evidence in order to convict Kevin. In the course of their investigation, they discounted, disregarded, and even discarded evidence pointing to other killers. Their decision to close their eyes early in the investigation to the possibility that someone other than Kevin Cooper might be guilty has led us to the situation in which we find ourselves today. Unfortunately, the district court made things worse. After our bench panel granted Kevin Cooper permission to file a second habeas application, the district court obstructed and impeded Kevin and his lawyers in almost every imaginable way. Kevin Cooper has now been on death row. Well, Dreamers, at the time this report was written, it was almost half of Kevin's life. Today, we have exceeded that and then some. Fletcher stated, in my opinion, he is probably innocent of the crimes for which the state of California is about to execute him. If he is innocent, the real killers have escaped. They may kill again. They may have already done so. We owe it to the victims of this horrible crime and to Kevin Cooper and to ourselves to get this one right. We should have taken this case and ordered the district judge to give Kevin Cooper the fair hearing that he has never had. It is our society that insists upon due process of law to the end that no person will be unjustly put to death, thus ensuring that more of those sentences will not be carried out. So far as due process is concerned, years of flawed proceedings are as good as no proceedings at all. We authorized Kevin Cooper to file his second habeas petition so that the district court could resolve the problem here. Either Kevin Cooper is guilty of sin, or he was framed by the police. There is no middle ground. Instead, through a series of errors accurately described in Fletcher's dissenting report, the district court precluded Kevin Cooper from having his day in court. The district court imposed unreasonable conditions on the testing that the court ordered. It refused discovery that should have been available as a matter of course. It limited testimony that should not have been limited and it found facts unreasonably based on a trunicated and distorted record. So dreamers, that was basically it in terms of Judge Fletcher's dissenting report. The remainder of it included the agreement of the other dissenting judges with Fletcher's lengthy report in Kevin's case, and it pretty much is a repeat of everything that we've gone over thus far. So now, dreamers, I want to talk. I want to first talk about one man and three weapons. It is one thing that wasn't addressed in depth was a theory that one man, Kevin, utilized three weapons in killing the Ryans and Christopher Hughes. All five victims had wounds consistent with having been caused by a hatchet or axe type weapon, a knife, and either an ice pick or a screwdriver. And the idea is that Kevin in need of a car and money to further his escape from prison, entered the Ryan's house as they slept and began his assault in the master bedroom where Doug and Peggy slept. With all three weapons, he began with the adults. He had to have done so in order to do this on his own, right? So he began chopping with a hatchet, slashing with a knife, and stabbing with an ice pick or a screwdriver using both hands? Maybe he hatched former Marine Doug with his left hand while simultaneously slashing screaming wife Peggy with his right? And remember, a loaded gun is within arm's reach of the couple's bed. And so Kevin's ice pick or screwdriver was in his pocket and he paused to switch out weapons and don't forget the children are descending upon the scene too of course they're not going to put up that much of a fight against a madman like this but still kevin's got three more human beings to gain control over to hatchet to slash and to stab with both hands wielding a weapon still and still swapping each one of them out with a third weapon that's being kept someplace convenient on his person. A private investigator working on the case, who also became friends with Mary Howell, Josh's grandmother and Peggy's mom, he suggested in an interview, I believe with 48 Hours, that Kevin had a utility belt of murder weapons. He was joking, of course. Also in an interview with 48 Hours, the sheriff at the time of San Bernardino opined that Kevin Cooper is ambidextrous, that he could hatchet, slash, and stab effectively with both hands. But again, the private investigator said of that, that that's a great theory, except that there were three weapons. Unless Kevin had his murder belt, right? And it doesn't matter how ambidextrous a person is, you're not going to be wielding three different weapons. And Mary Howell herself, who never believed only one man did this, said something in her interview in the same show that really, really stuck with me as I wove through this story. She never believed that her family stood in line and waited their turn to be killed. She believes that her family, her son-in-law, her daughter, that they would have fought for their lives and the lives of their children, and one man would not have been able to get over on them. So dreamers, I'm pretty sure over the course of these four episodes that I've raised a plethora of reasons why this case against Kevin is flawed. Even though we are looking at this case with 36 years of hindsight and we can clearly see all of those reasons, Kevin was still convicted on what he was convicted on by a jury and appeal after appeal, motion after motion was continually denied, denied, denied. Everyone went along with the story that Kevin did this on his own. So I wonder, is it really possible? Is it possible for Kevin? Or is it possible for even the most cunning ninja-like killer to single-handedly manipulate three weapons while slaughtering five people? There might be some highly trained, hand-to-hand, combat, militant fighting master out there that could pull it off, I mean, if they were sleeping and three of them were children and not present at the onset of the confrontation, perhaps. But Kevin Cooper? He's six foot or 1.83 meters tall, weighing in at 150 pounds or 68 kilograms soaking wet. What say you? Is it plausible? Believable? Beyond a reasonable doubt? You tell me. Now, to be fair, there are those out there who believe Kevin Cooper is guilty. I even listened to a podcast that came to the conclusion that there's lots of evidence pointing to him having been the one to have done this. But I also found an article, and maybe it was more like a blog, but it was on cjlf.org, which is the Criminal Justice League Foundation, and it was compiled by the foundation president, Michael Rushford, and public policy director, Sue Blake in March of 2004, entitled California has wasted enough time on Kevin Cooper. This is what it said. Movie stars and anti-death penalty advocates are desperately grabbing at straws in an effort to postpone the execution of condemned murderer, Kevin Cooper, who faces execution at San Quentin on February 10, 2004. In addition to staging daily press events to encourage Governor Schwarzenegger to take action, lawyers representing Cooper have filed a petition with the California Supreme Court claiming new evidence warrants a decision to spare Cooper's life. In a statement released Friday, January 30, 2004, Governor Schwarzenegger denied clemency to Cooper. The governor clearly separated the claims of both anti-death penalty advocates from the overwhelming evidence of guilt that resulted in Cooper's conviction and death sentence. The condemning evidence is as follows On June 2, 1983, Cooper, who then called himself David Troutman, escaped from the minimum security prison in Chino, California. Cooper had been serving a sentence for two residential burglaries in Los Angeles. One year earlier, he had left Pennsylvania where he had been suspected of the assault and rape of a teenage girl who had interrupted him while he was burglarizing her home. Undisputed evidence, including Cooper's fingerprints and his own statements, indicate that after his escape, he took refuge in an empty house next door to the Chino home of Doug Ryan, his wife Peggy, and their two children, 10-year-old Jessica and 8-year-old Josh. Cooper made telephone calls from the empty house on June 3rd and 4th to two women. Both women refused his requests for help or money. One whom he had called at 7.53 p.m. on June 4th received another call from Cooper two days later in Mexico. Between 9 and 9.30 on June 4th, the Ryan family and a friend of their children, 11-year-old Chris Hughes, left the barbecue to return to the Ryan home where Chris was spending the night. The next morning, Chris's mother became worried when her telephone calls to the Ryan home were not answered. When Chris's father went to the house to investigate, he found the doors locked and their station wagon missing. From the back of the house, looking through the sliding glass door, he saw the bodies of his son, Doug, Peggy, and Jessica Ryan lying on the floor. He then kicked in the kitchen door and found everyone except eight-year-old Josh dead. The victims died from numerous chopping wounds, later determined to have been inflicted by a hatchet or an axe, and stabbing wounds inflicted by both a knife and an ice pick. Later that day, blood-stained items were found in the vacant house where Cooper had stayed, including a button from a prison jacket identical to the one he was wearing when he escaped. A police criminologist also found evidence of blood on the carpet, in the bathroom sink, and in the shower along with Cooper's footprint. Hairs from the shower drain and the bathroom sink were consistent with those from two of the victims. A bloodstained hatchet from the vacant house was later found near the Ryan home. The sheath from the hatchet was found on the floor of the bedroom where Cooper had slept. Some hunting knives and at least one ice pick were also missing from the vacant house. A strap fitting one of the missing knives was found in the same bedroom. Shoe prints were found in the Ryan home and the vacant house next door, matching the unique pattern of shoes issued exclusively to prison inmates. The prints indicated shoes of Cooper's size and brand that he had recently received in prison. While most of the blood samples taken at the murder scene were determined to have come from the victims, one sample was conclusively determined to have come from a black person with the same blood group as Cooper. The sample was too small to determine if it was Cooper's rare blood type. The Ryan Station Wagon was found several days after the killings in a church parking lot in Long Beach. Hairs found in the car matched those of Cooper. Tobacco issued exclusively to prison inmates, which Cooper smoked, was found in the vacant house and in the Ryan Station Wagon. Two days after the murders, Cooper befriended a couple in Mexico and joined them on a boat trip up the California coast. Weeks later, Cooper was arrested on a boat off of Santa Barbara after the woman reported that he had raped her at knife point, threatening to kill her if she woke her husband. Following his arrest, several items were taken from the vacant house in Chino were discovered on the boat. At his trial, Cooper admitted staying in the Chino house but denied any involvement in the Ryan murders. Josh Ryan, who miraculously survived his injuries, testified that he awoke on the night of the murders after hearing his mother's screams. He remembered being hit from behind when trying to investigate, but was unable to identify his attacker. For the years following his 1985 conviction, Cooper claims of trial and sentencing errors that have been reviewed by California and federal courts. In 2000, he won a delay of his execution so that new DNA testing could be performed on various blood and saliva samples found at the murder scene in the stolen station wagon and on a bloody t-shirt found near the Ryan home. The DNA from all of these samples was found to have come from the same person. The DNA was then compared to DNA from Cooper's blood and it matched. The odds of the match being by chance were 1 in 310 billion. In their current petition, Cooper's defenders are now advancing weak claims that evidence was tampered with or that someone else committed the murders. None are compelling and none should delay the swift execution of Cooper. The weak, last-minute claims by Cooper and his anti-death penalty colleagues are summarized and refuted as follows. And dreamers, you better believe I'm going to refute those refutations. Number one the girlfriend of a former inmate friend of Cooper's thought her boyfriend might have been involved in the murder. She turned his bloody coveralls over to the local Yukaipa sheriff's substation. By the way, she didn't turn them over to the substation. A deputy was sent out to pick them up. But they threw out the coveralls without testing them. This girlfriend, Diana Roper, and in this article, and I'm going to periodically jump in and point out all the errors in it, This article called her Diane when her name is Diana. It's a small detail, but in this case, all the details matter. At least they do to me. So if you're going to argue in favor of Kevin Cooper's guilt, then you better get it right. So Diana Roper was dismissed by law enforcement as completely lacking credibility. She was a professed witch who claimed she had a vision during a trance that the murder had been committed after she heard about the Ryan case. However, she had no substantive reason to believe that her boyfriend was involved with Cooper the night of the murder. In fact, she told sheriff's investigators that she did not even know to whom the coveralls belonged. She just said she knew from the vision that the coveralls were connected to the case. By the time San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department heard about her fantastical story, they had Cooper in custody with mountains of evidence against him. Based on their limited resources and already having the likely killer in custody, the San Bernardino County Police chose not to expend precious time and money chasing Roper's crazy story. I'm sorry, but none of this makes any sense whatsoever. They described Diana Roper's boyfriend, meaning Lee Furrow, as a former inmate friend of Kevin Cooper's. It was uncovered during the course of the investigation that both Diana Roper and Lee Furrow were white supremacists, and I highly doubt, even if they were in prison together at the same time, that they would be friends. Also, I have no idea where this information about Diana claiming to be a witch came from. Even if she did, it really has no relevance on the fact that she found the bloody coveralls on the floor of her closet and turned them over to the sheriff's department. And at the time, the deputy who took them from her said he believed Roper to be credible based on previous interactions with her and her family. Their own sheriff's department at one point in time described Diana Roper as credible. This article said Diana didn't even know who the coveralls belonged to, but she has been consistent from day one that she knows them to belong to Lee Furrow, along with the tan t-shirt. She has been consistent Every single time she's been interviewed. And then, as far as having Kevin in custody already with quote unquote mountains of evidence, which we know is not true, all they had was that he was holed up in the house down the hill from the Ryans, the rest of the evidence began appearing periodically and sometimes magically through the course of the investigation. And the idea that the sheriff's department were trying to conserve money and resources by throwing the coveralls out is absolutely absurd. Even if Diana's story was far-fetched, you still have coveralls with blood all over them. How is that not a thing that raises serious concerns for law enforcement? Even if the coveralls weren't connected to the Ryan Hughes murders, there's still coveralls covered in blood. That blood needs to be tested no matter where they came from to determine if that blood was human or animal. And if it was human blood, then that is something to be concerned about no matter what. And the fact that they could have very well been connected to the Chino Hills massacre means evidence was purposely being hidden from Kevin. And this is a clear violation of his rights. There is no justifiable reason to have thrown those coveralls out without testing them. And also, don't forget, a whole bar full of people saw a man with bloody coveralls the night of the murders, too. So there's that. Number two, a clump of blonde hair was found in the hand of Jessica Ryan. It should be DNA tested. This article said... The hair found on little Jessica's hand was not a clump of hair desperately yanked out of a head like Cooper's defense counsel implies. It was hair or fibers, which both ends appeared to have been cut. It had no roots or bits of scalp attached, hence it could not be DNA tested. Advances in DNA testing now allow for mitochondrial testing, but this would not identify a donor without a reference sample. Now remember, Dreamers, this was written in 2004 and DNA testing has advanced much more now. Additionally, the Ryan's carpet was extremely dirty and there were many types of hair all throughout the house. The family had several cats and dogs that lived inside and their property was a horse breeding ranch. At trial, a criminalist testified that at least some of the hairs stuck to Jessica's bloody hand was animal hair attached to her as she crawled on the floor in vain to escape the attack. Finally, the alleged blonde hair is irrelevant to the conviction of Cooper. DNA testing of the hair would neither exonerate nor incriminate Cooper. It is blonde and obviously not his. Even if it were tested to show to be that of another human being, that proves nothing. The Ryan children were blonde and surely many guests at their home were blonde as well there is no evidence from the crime scene to suggest a blonde attacker was also present so demanding additional DNA testing is simply a red herring okay this bothers me in a number of ways yes DNA testing might not yield much in terms of how this hair is related to Kevin or not it is obvious that it's not his hair but therein lies the issue The hair is not Kevin Cooper's. That means, unequivocally, Jessica's hand reached for and grabbed hair from someone that was not Kevin Cooper. Because, contrary to what this article described as a bunch of rando hair stuck to Jessica's bloody hand as she attempted to crawl away, I've seen pictures of the hair taken out of her hand and marked into evidence. It was a significant amount of hair that were all the same blondish kind of strawberry blonde hair. Those were not random hairs that she gathered from what they called a dirty carpet. I took a screenshot of the hair evidence and you will clearly see most of the hairs appear to be the same. None of them are horse or cat or dog hairs. They're human hair. I also did not read anywhere that these hairs appeared to have been cut from a source, except from this article. And if that is the case, there are two plausible explanations. Either they were cut to obtain root material, if available for testing by the lab, or I wouldn't put it past the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department to have tampered with the hairs to make it appear to be other than what they were. Hairs yanked by Jessica when she fought her attacker. That remained clutched in her hand when she died. In any other case, with hair clutched in hand... It's open and shut. That's hair from an attacker. And don't forget, of all the hairs found in the Ryan's home on their supposedly dirty carpet, not one of them was Kevin's. He fought five people, supposedly, and Kevin managed to defeat them all, literally, without a hair out of place? Right. Number three, Josh Ryan told the police that he thought three men committed the attack. He later changed his story. When Josh was rescued the day after the murders, he could not talk because his throat had been slashed. He could only squeeze the police officer's hand in response to questions. The story that Josh was finally able to tell is that he was awakened in the middle of the night by his mother's screams. When he and his friend Chris went to investigate, he saw the bodies of his parents and Jessica and the backside of one unfamiliar person so he ran and hid then he heard Chris screaming so Josh ran back towards his friend at that point something struck him in the head knocking him unconscious he awoke later in a pool of blood when questioned later by investigators Josh spoke of three Mexicans who had come to the house earlier in the day and it was thought that they could have done it because they had been there once before However, Josh never said he saw three people commit the murders. He consistently told different investigators that he only saw one attacker. The triple murder theory is merely speculation based on the visit of three Mexicans and the twisting of a little boy's words. Additionally, Josh was an eight-year-old boy who was startled awake by a horrific murder and was brutally attacked. It is unsurprising that probing questions by adults and the power of suggestion later tried to confuse his story. Most important, however, Cooper was not convicted on the limited testimony of an eight-year-old. He was convicted on a mountain of other incriminating evidence. Okay, I have a big, huge problem with all of this. First of all, Josh didn't just tell investigators that he saw three Mexicans. He told counselor Don Gamundoy that he saw three white men. Gamundoy was the first person to talk to Josh in the hospital, and Josh provided him with this information after he correctly spelled out his name, gave his date of birth, and his phone number. So, yes, Josh was traumatized and brutally attacked and hit in the head, but he gave his correct information to Gamundoy and to the first deputy to speak to him, too. And he said there were three attackers. Why is it that we accept he was able to give his name, his birthday, and his phone number, but we dismiss his recollections of three attackers as a moment of confusion? And as for the three Mexicans, yes, he said they came by earlier looking for work. If Josh became confused by that, then I would postulate that it would be the work of Detective Ocampo who visited Josh as many as 20 times while he was in the hospital, who later on lied and said he never talked to Josh while he was in the hospital when he was impeached by witnesses who were there, including Josh's grandma, who said she saw him talking to Josh and taking notes. So ask yourselves, dreamers, why would Detective Ocampo lie about this? Could it be because he was the one working to mold Josh's story to fit the Sheriff's Department's narrative, and by extension, shaping Josh's memories into what they needed them to be? What other reason would he lie about visiting Josh? This article said that probing questions by adults and the power of suggestion later tried to confuse his story. Yeah, it did. Law enforcement did exactly that. The only untwisted words that came from Josh were the very first ones the afternoon he was in the hospital before the questioning by all these adults, aka sheriff's deputies, later on twisted the story around. I believe what Josh said in his first two interviews, and so did his grandma. Everything beyond that fell victim to the same thing. Everything else in this case fell victim to police corruption, conspiracy, lies, and cover-ups. Number four, a hatchet cover matching one of the murder weapons was not found in the initial investigation of the vacant house. Cigarette butts found in the Ryan's car matching Cooper's DNA were not found in the first search of the car. Both of these items were found in subsequent searches indicating that they could have been planted. So the article excused this by saying this was a major and complex crime scene investigation that involved many detectives and over 700 pieces of evidence. It took many days to gather the evidence. The process and collection of evidence was scrutinized at an extensive evidentiary pretrial hearing and no misconduct was found by the judge. Every appellate court that subsequently looked at the allegations of police misconduct concluded that the police investigators acted in good faith and did not engage in the destruction of material evidence. Even the notoriously defendant-sympathetic Ninth Circuit concluded the police acted properly and found no evidence of misconduct. Additionally, evidence found in subsequent searches is not necessarily indicative of police misconduct. Frequently, investigators find important evidence on second or third searches because they have a better idea of what they're looking for. For example, when police first investigated the house that Cooper hid in, they had not yet found the hatchet that was later connected to the crimes. They did not know the significance of the hatchet sheath that was later found in the house. The Ryan car was found in a church parking lot in Long Beach and was initially inspected to be certain it was the Ryan's car. It was then impounded for safety to prevent tampering by outsiders. The cigarette butts were found when the police had the ability to go over it with their fine-tooth comb. Not until 2003 did Cooper even challenge the chain of custody of the cigarette butts, and this only after he had lost all of his appeals based on DNA evidence. At the evidentiary hearing on the butts, the judge found that the chain of custody was well-established and properly documented by police. Cooper completely failed to make any showing that law enforcement tampered with or contaminated any evidence in this case. Wrong, 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 wrong. As for the hatchet sheath, okay, I am certain that this was a complex crime scene investigation, But you know what? The scene inside the Lee Slang hideout house was anything but complex. It was nearly empty of all furnishings. The place had been cleaned recently by the last occupant, and the only thing in the hideout bedroom was a bed headboard. This is not a complex crime scene by any stretch of the imagination. One of the first detectives to go through the room did not find the sheath in the bedroom, which would later be identified as only two things, maybe three, found on the floor. Nothing else was there. Also, they had recovered the bloody hatchet by the time that search was conducted, so they at least had some knowledge of its existence. Then that deputy who made the first search, who did not find anything in the bedroom, lied about ever being in the room because he needed to remove himself from having been in there because how could he explain not having seen the sheath when he made his first pass through the room? He had to in order for the sheath to have not been seen. Later on, this deputy's fingerprints were found on the inside of the bedroom closet, which meant he lied about being in there. He was in there and he was searching without gloves on and he found nothing. Upon the second search, that's when the sheath was found in plain sight. It suddenly appeared between the first search and the second search, and to me, that is clear proof of tampering with and planting of evidence. As for all the judges and appellate courts not finding any wrongdoing on the part of the police, that's because they were being lied to and manipulated with false evidence being presented to them. Of course, they found no wrongdoing as they were accepting what was being presented to them by what is inherently supposed to be the prima facie truth. In other words, not believing law enforcement was not an option for the courts and the judges. They're just going to believe them. As for the cigarette butts, the initial search of the vehicle should have turned up the cigarette butts as they were eventually photographed in plain view on the back seat of the station wagon. If they didn't see them upon initial inspection, then they definitely were not being thorough, even with an initial cursory once over of the interior of the car. The seats of the station wagon were dark tan. The butts were white. Even the average person peering through the window would have noticed them. They were the only things back there. And as for Kevin not challenging the chain of custody, What reason would he have had to do that until DNA testing became available to him after 2000? Kevin Cooper, it is clear, did not stop and think that DNA testing would have bit him in the butt. He would have bet his life on it. Those cigarette butts would not come back containing his DNA as he maintained from the start. This wasn't him. He didn't do this. If Kevin Cooper killed the Ryans and Christopher Hughes, stole their station wagon, smoked cigarettes in their vehicle, why would he leave the butts on the back seat? And if he knew those were his cigarettes, why in the world would he insist on post-conviction DNA testing, knowing that they would come back as a positive match for him? The answer is obvious. He didn't think in a million years that DNA would come back to match him. He was certain of this because he did not do this crime. And it never even crossed his mind that the butts belonging to him were planted by police. That's when he began questioning the chain of custody. And as we went over in Judge Fletcher's report, cigarettes from the jail, from the hideout house, and from Kevin's own car, were never logged into evidence. They were never accounted for. And that is an absolute showing of law enforcement tampering with evidence. Kevin Cooper isn't going to find a chain of custody issue because there was no chain of custody to be had. And one last thing about the cigarettes. Remember, they were found in the back seat. Have any of us ever known a smoker to finish a cigarette and toss the butt into the back seat of the car that they're driving and even if the smoker is seated in the back seat are you going to put your cigarette out and place it on the seat well maybe he did this because it wasn't his car and he didn't care i'm not buying it smokers have habits they are a part of the smoking experience If they're in a car, they may put it out in an ashtray. They may toss it out the window. They may drop it into an empty beverage container. But disposing of a cigarette butt on the backseat of a car is not a thing the average smoker does. But apparently, it is a thing that the average evidence planter does. Because if you hearken back to our episode on the PTA mom... Where was it that Jill Easter and Kent Easter, whichever one of them did this, planted the drug paraphernalia to try to frame their child's PTA volunteer? Right there on the back seat. And I would also like to point out that if Kevin Cooper was so stealthy as to not leave so much as a single hair, fiber, or drop of blood at the crime scene, How was it that he got so sloppy by leaving cigarette butts in the car he supposedly stole? Everything points to planting of evidence here, clearly. Number five, a bloody t-shirt found at a nearby bar or restaurant had both Cooper and Ryan blood on it. It mysteriously disappeared from police evidence locker in San Bernardino County for 24 hours. Cooper blood could have been planted on it during that time so it should not have been admitted into evidence. The article said, The bloody t-shirt was cut up when it was tested. The portion that stayed in San Bernardino County Sheriff's property evidence showed of only Ryan blood. The portion that included Cooper's blood was sent under property chain of evidence to San Diego County Superior Court evidence locker where the trial was being held. The portion in San Diego was under constant surveillance and was never removed without being videotaped. The portion in San Bernardino was the piece that was removed without proper authorization for 24 hours. It is not relevant to the Cooper investigation. Excuse me? Is the person writing this article even listening to themselves? I do not recall at any point did Judge Fletcher address the issue of the shirt being separated during trial into two different pieces. Nowhere except for this junk article have I ever seen that. Why would they even do that? I don't even know if that's a thing. I've never seen that in any trial. A piece of clothing purposely cut in half to be presented at trial? That kind of sounds like evidence tampering. And then when this article said, quote, The portion in San Bernardino was a piece that was removed without authorization for 24 hours. It is not relevant to the Cooper conviction. Say what? How is that not a serious problem to the person writing this article? At this point, where we're at with this right now, any piece of evidence removed for any amount of time in Kevin Cooper's case is a serious problem for the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. I don't care which piece of the shirt this was. This is a problem. And Kevin's blood was not on the shirt at trial. There may have been a type similar to his, but it was never proven to have been his definitively because definitive blood identification was not a thing back then. His blood did not quote unquote appear on the shirt until it was time for post-conviction DNA testing that's when vial VV-2 was checked out without proper authorization. And when the t-shirt was tested for DNA, that's when Cooper's blood was found to be on the shirt with those elevated levels of EDTA, if you recall. And in a side note to this, if Kevin bled all over this t-shirt during the course of this crime, how is it he managed to not bleed anywhere in the crime scene? Number six, some of the jurors who many years ago unanimously found Cooper guilty and sentenced him to death wrote to the governor expressing concerns about his impending execution. They indicated that if they had known then what they know today, they would not have voted for death. The article said these jurors were presented with one sided information from Cooper's defense attorneys in an attempt to create doubt in their minds years after the fact. Some of the information given to the former jurors was inadmissible evidence and speculative theories that were not permitted at trial. Time has a way of fading memories of all the admissible and certain evidence that the jurors deliberated. When given just Cooper's biased version of what happened all those years ago, it's not surprising that some of the jurors had second thoughts. However, at the time of trial, when everything was fresh in their minds, and the jurors had the opportunity to view the evidence and deliberate together, they unanimously agreed that Cooper was guilty, and they unanimously agreed that the proper sentence was death. At this point, the defense is preying on faded memories and emotions of the Cooper jurors. Um, excuse me, but time does not simply fade memories. Time brings about new information. It brings things into focus that were not so clear many years ago technological and scientific advances in ways that sharpens what we know happened. It doesn't diminish it. It's still there. We just now have years and years of hindsight, not to mention a clearer picture of what actually went down in this police investigation. Nearly every witness for the prosecution was later proven to be a liar at trial. But when the jurors deliberated, they did not know all those cops and experts and witnesses were lying to them. We know now because they've been proven to be lies. Science has advanced in such a way that interpretation of the evidence had much more clarity, and with that, it became evident that police tampered with nearly every single piece of physical evidence in order to make Kevin Cooper fit this crime. It was not the jurors' memories that did not stand the test of time. No, it wasn't that at all. It was a corrupt police investigation that crumbled in the face of advancing time and technology. What those jurors had when they wrote to the governor, finally, was the truth. And thus far, they seem to be the only people in this entire ordeal willing to come forward now and say, You know what? We made a mistake. And why is that? Because they are good people with a conscience. Unlike everyone else who had a hand in Kevin Cooper's arrest, trial, and conviction. That's what sets those jurors apart. Number seven, EDTA testing must be done to determine whether or not police lab analysts tampered with the blood evidence. So this article said, EDTA is a preservative that can be detected if a compound has been contaminated by an outside source. It is used to preserve blood samples, such as the ones taken from Cooper many years ago. Cooper wants EDA testing to be performed on the bloody t-shirt found near the murder scene to see if police lab technicians may have tampered with it while it was in their custody. Cooper alleges that the police put blood from his test tube sample containing EDTA on the t-shirt to further implicate him. He suggests that if the t-shirt shows evidence of EDTA testing, that proves it came from his test tube sample. However, EDTA is a common compound found in hand creams, laundry detergents, and other everyday products. It could show up in the test if the t-shirt had ever come in contact with any of these products. The mere presence of EDTA would be inconclusive with respect to tampering because it could show up for reasons completely unrelated to the police lab. During the OJ Simpson trial, EDTA testing was a highly contentious issue because of its inability to show the origin of any EDTA contaminants. Since EDA testing can neither exonerate nor inculpate Cooper, it serves no reason to postpone his execution. Okay, yes, some things have background levels of EDTA in them. That is a known fact. That is what the control samples from the t-shirt were for. To compare the areas of the shirt that were said to have Kevin's blood on them with other areas of the shirt that did not. If the areas with Kevin's blood contained higher levels of EDTA than the background levels of EDTA in the control samples, then that would be very suggestive his blood was planted based on the fact that the areas with Kevin's blood had significantly higher levels. Now, I don't have to go over again how shady and dodgy and underhanded the state was in providing the test samples from the shirt, but they refused to allow Kevin's expert to participate in the selection of the samples of the shirt, which is a complete violation of Kevin's rights to due process and a fair trial. What in the world reason would the state refuse to allow Kevin's expert to not only be present and participate in the selection of the shirt samples, but also not even allow his expert to see the shirt? The answer here is clear. The state needed to make sure that the EDTA levels in the pieces that contained Kevin's blood matched the EDTA levels in the pieces that didn't. There simply is no other reason why Kevin's expert was excluded. And they never really explained why either. EDTA testing can absolutely have an impact on Kevin's case. If the EDTA levels were elevated, that means his blood was planted. And that absolutely is exculpatory and absolutely is a reason to halt Kevin's execution. Number eight. A police officer involved in the original Cooper investigation changed his mind about Cooper's guilt after looking more closely at the evidence. The article said, Former police investigator Paul Ingalls was involved in the manhunt for Cooper in 1983. Many years later, Ingalls was hired by Cooper's defense team to investigate the case. And Dreamers, he is the private investigator that I mentioned earlier discussing Kevin having a murder utility belt. Ingalls' review of the evidence prompted him to believe that perhaps Cooper did not commit the murders. In 2000, Ingalls went on national TV's 48 Hours expressing his skepticism and calling for more investigation. But after having followed the developments in the case and reinvestigating the evidence, Ingalls has since changed his mind. He is now of the opinion, quote, beyond any shadow of a doubt that Kevin Cooper was involved in the murders. Now, this may very well be true. A private investigator hired to look into a case may walk away from it with the belief that Kevin Cooper is guilty. He has every right to do that. And I looked into it. And the reason it seems that he came to the conclusion that Kevin is guilty is because of the post-conviction DNA testing of the cigarette butts, that disappearing and reappearing cigarette paper, that disappearing and reappearing bloodstain A-41, and the sudden appearance of more than one DNA profile in vial VV-2 that should have only contained Kevin's blood? DNA evidence is supposed to be irrefutable, right? Unless that DNA evidence is planted by police and it can be proven that it was planted. Paul Ingalls is a former cop. What is he most likely going to do once the DNA results come back as a match to Kevin? Is he going to believe his former brothers in blue planted evidence or is he going to believe the science cut his losses and move on? I'm not saying Ingalls is naive in believing the evidence. Nobody wants to believe police officers are actually committing such egregious acts of malfeasance. I don't want to believe it, but what I can't do and what many of us can't do is ignore the truth Ingalls' belief in Kevin Cooper's innocence was going to live or die on those DNA results. Furthermore, what Ingalls chooses to believe or not believe has nothing to do with the facts of Kevin's case. Number nine, an affidavit from the warden of the prison from which Cooper escaped said that the prison shoes issued to Cooper were not the only shoes that could have matched the bloody shoe prints found next door to the murder scene. You know what, dreamers, I'm not even going to entertain what this article had to say about Warden Mitch Carroll's information regarding Kevin's shoes and whether or not they were prison issued. It has been made abundantly clear by now that the testimony at trial that the prosecution emphasized over and over again that the shoe prints found at the Ryan's house came from a prison only shoe is not only false evidence because there is no such shoe manufactured exclusively for California prisons but also because it's been shown that there's a high probability that those two prints were planted. I think we have beaten the shoe issue to death already. The shoe print, which was a big reason why Kevin was convicted, has been proven to be false evidence, therefore useless, other than an example of evidence tampering by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. So the article addressed one or more issues regarding the women who saw a group of men at the bar, one of them with bloody coveralls, and how their testimony was inconsistent. We went over this in Judge Fletcher's report, and despite the fact that the various witnesses may have seen or heard different things, the one thing that was corroborated by more than one of them is that one of the white men was wearing coveralls with blood on it. Another person said it looks like grease, which would be a logical conclusion to jump to, considering you're not going to think a man is going to walk into a bar with blood all over him. Having just come from committing mass murder, he's wearing coveralls. You're probably going to think he's a mechanic and he's got grease on his clothing. That is a normal conclusion to draw. So in a case such as Kevin's, even in the face of overwhelming evidence of his innocence, and for Kevin, there is an abundance of such, sometimes it simply isn't enough. I mean, we have cases that are somewhat questionable where the debate is going to rage on until the end of time, like Stephen Avery or Ednan Syed or Darlie Boutier. In their cases, some will point to a detail of the crime scene or a dubious piece of evidence that throws up shades of doubt, and that becomes a point of debate. But what we've heard defense attorneys say in the past a key part of proving their client has been wrongfully convicted is to find a viable alternative suspect. Throughout this entire case, we have mentioned Lee Furrow numerous times. His name was floated by his then-girlfriend Diana Roper after she discovered those bloody coveralls in her closet. Now, as compelling of a piece of evidence that may be, What exactly is it that would make Lee Furrow a viable suspect in the murders of the Ryan family and Christopher Hughes? Why would this man, along with two of his associates, break into the Ryan home and slaughter them? There was no robbery, other than the stolen car that was later abandoned. Nobody was sexually assaulted. The purpose of this crime was to annihilate the Ryan family, so why? What would be his motive? We'll get to that. Because I like having a motive. You don't have to prove one, but it certainly helps to explain a lot. Since we are on the subject of motive, let's think about Kevin Coopers for a moment. He's a career burglar, right? I haven't forgotten about the one or two allegations of possible sexual assault or attempted sexual assault, though he was never convicted of any violent crimes. And Kevin Cooper has had a couple of girlfriends, right? He gave them both a call from the hideout house asking for money and neither one of them was able nor willing to help. Which is understandable. They've got their own lives to worry about. And not only that, they probably don't want to get slapped with aiding and abetting charges either. So we must ask ourselves, why would Kevin Cooper break into the Ryan house and slaughter four people to death, including two children And leave one child for dead for seemingly no apparent reason the prosecution said he did it in order to steal their car to go to mexico but i have a couple of problems with that if kevin killed everybody and then stole the car why did he not steal anything of value from the home he needed money we know that for a fact He called two girlfriends or at the very least female acquaintances, but probably girlfriends or former girlfriends because they might be more inclined to want to help, seeing as that they might care about him more than just the regular acquaintance. But they didn't help. So Kevin resorted to murdering the Ryans and not stealing Peggy's purse or the money that was on the kitchen counter, the things he needed, the things that he normally steals. It doesn't make any sense. And if his plan was to go to Mexico, why then did he drive to Long Beach to ditch the car? On the podcast that I listened to, where they found some of the circumstances of this crime being indicative of Kevin's guilt, they said that Long Beach is along the way to Mexico. It is not at all. Not even close. If I wanted to go to Mexico from Chino Hills, I would get on the 15 freeway headed south which extends to San Diego, where it merges with a network of freeways, including the 5 and the 805, which take you right to the border north of Tijuana. Heading north on the 15 takes you from San Diego through Riverside County, through San Bernardino County, all the way into Nevada through Las Vegas to Salt Lake City. And just as it does in San Diego, the 15 merges into other freeways. Long Beach is in Los Angeles County, and this is way west of any of this. But you know what is in Long Beach? Lee Furrow's mom. Now, Kevin claims that he hitchhiked to Mexico and used money from a purse that he stole to rent a hotel room. That's been proven that he did indeed check into a hotel in Mexico the following afternoon after the murders. Let's think about this for a moment. Kevin Cooper, as I had said in the very first part of the series, at first glance, he doesn't exactly seem like someone you would want to pick up hitchhiking. The truth is he appears somewhat menacing, and it's not necessarily because he's African American. He just looks a little rough around the edges. As hesitant as we may be to want to pick up Kevin, we would be just as hesitant to pick up Lee Furrow too as he strikes me as having as much potential to be as threatening as Kevin if not more so just based on looks. But somehow Kevin manages to catch rides all the way down to Mexico. How and why is that? Well, let's consider what Kevin was able to do after he got to Mexico. He befriended a couple that owned the boat the Handys and he schmoozed his way into a cozy little gig as a crew member on their boat. For as many as seven weeks, Kevin sailed around with this couple who didn't know him from Adam. A husband and wife welcomed the stranger that they met in Mexico and trusted him enough to bring him on as a crew member and sailed with him for almost two months without incident. What does that tell us about Kevin Cooper? Well, I'll tell you what it says to me. It tells me that he's charming, that he's easygoing, that he's easily trusted, that he's well spoken. He has a way of getting along with people and not killing them. I believe Kevin charmed his way onto the Handy's boat, and I believe he charmed his way from Chino Hills to Mexico by way of hitchhiking. I believe people felt at ease around him and they found no reason to fear him. The podcast that I listened to that felt as though Kevin could be guilty questioned why, if Lee Furrow and company drove to the Ryan house to kill them, why would they need to steal their car to get away? They said on their podcast that it doesn't make any sense for them to do this killing and take the car, it being the only thing taken from the home. The answer came to me immediately as I listened to the hosts question this. They were covered in blood. They did not want to get any blood in the vehicle in which they arrived in at the Ryan's house. And this would account for some reports of there being three or possibly four individuals involved. They had a driver. And when the three individuals went into the house with their three weapons they worked together to annihilate the Ryans and Christopher Hughes. Then the three of them got into the Ryans' car, leaving three seats covered in blood, and drove off while their fourth accomplice drove away in the vehicle in which they arrived. Then the Ryan station wagon appeared at Diana Roper's home, where the first person to get into fresh clothes, Lee Furrow, deposited those bloody coveralls on the floor of her closet. Then he drove off on his motorcycle and they headed out to ditch the car close to Furrow's mom's house, a place he would be comfortable, a place where he could get his buddies cleaned up. Do I know that this is what happened? No, I don't. But it sure as hell makes more sense than the story the state presented against Kevin Cooper. So, dreamers, why? If Lee Furrow and company are responsible for the murders of the Ryans and Christopher Hughes and the attack on Josh Ryan, what was the reason for it? We kind of alluded to it earlier when someone suggested a quote-unquote debt needed to be collected, but what exactly does that mean? Did the Ryans owe Lee Furrow money? No, I don't think that was it. The debt to be paid was to be settled with their deaths. Debt was a figure of speech. Lee Furrow was there to murder the Ryans at the behest of someone else. And that someone else had previously hired Lee Furrow to kill for him before. And that someone else is a man named Clarence Ray Allen. And if the name Clarence Ray Allen sounds vaguely familiar it might be because he is the last man to be executed in California in 2006. He also holds the distinction of being the second oldest person to be executed in the United States, and for a time, he was the oldest. So, how does he fit into all of this? Well, it turns out that he had had some pretty serious involvement with Leo Ferro in the past involving another murder. Let's talk about that for a moment. The following information I gathered from crimemagazine.com in a 2009 article written by Randy Radick: Clarence Ray Allen was born January 16, 1930 in Blair, Oklahoma, and is believed to be part of the Choctaw Native American tribe. He was raised in a very poor family but was determined early on for a better life. He eventually made his way out to California Fresno to be exact, where he settled down with a wife and established his own business operating a security company, which did really well, due in part to Alan's friendly, outgoing personality, coupled with a strong work ethic. Lee Furrow was one of Allen's employees at the security company. Eventually, Alan purchased a horse ranch where he began breeding show-quality horses, thoroughbreds and Arabians. And here is where we get the possible link to the Ryan family. If you recall, I mentioned in part one that the Ryan family also lived on ranch property and they too raised Arabian horses. I'll come back to that after I finish up with some of Alan's background. So Clarence Ray Allen, he's considered to be one of those rare individuals whose life veered off course later on, when he got older. All had been seemingly going well for him, business-wise. He was successful, he reached the goal that he had set for himself growing up in a poor family, that he wanted a better life for himself when he grew up. He just suddenly decided to turn to crime, creating his own personal network of cronies, to whom he referred to as the Ray Allen Gang. And he used his charismatic personality to draw people in, kind of like a cult leader, like Charles Manson. Young people who were easily swayed by his charm, who were susceptible and impetuous. They were people looking for something more than life seemed to be offering them. When they joined up with Alan, it felt as though they had gained a sense of purpose. But what he really did was turn them on to a life of crime. And rule number one was they were sworn to secrecy. And part of that meant no rolling over on anyone to the police. And if they did, they died. In order to prove that he was serious, Ray Allen showed them a news article reporting that two people who were murdered in the next state over in Nevada, he said he was the one that ordered that hit so with that alan began executing a succession of strategic robberies and those would include both home and commercial robberies and an odd thing about alan he was good at what he did and he liked it it got him off in a couple ways it was kind of a rush and it was fast and easy money and on top of that he was pretty much hands-off He sent his people in to do all the dirty work. And for the most part, they were just robberies. Insurance would cover the losses. No harm, no foul. Everybody walks away. But that wasn't going to be the case forever. In 1974, Ray planned a robbery at Franz Market located in Fresno, California. The thing about this one was that the owners, they were good friends of his. And to him, that meant easy pickings. He was familiar with the store. He knew exactly how this one would be pulled off without a hitch. And he laid out his plan. But he was going to need a few hands on deck to do this particular job. So he called in his own son, Roger, along with Roger's girlfriend. Because, you know, a couple who robs together, right? And there was a pair of other recruits that included two other young men. Carl Mayfield, and none other than Lee Furrow. Yep, the Lee Furrow. Mr. Bloody Coveralls himself. What do you know? He's got a criminal background. Not that that's surprising to any of you listening. So here is what Alan came up with for the Franz market job. Roger was going to ask the son of the owners of Franz, Brian Shalettowicz, to spend the afternoon at Alan's house to hang out, to go swimming, whatever. So when they would get there, they would get into their swim trunks. Roger would have Brian change in the pool house. While they were in the pool, Roger's accomplices would snoop through Roger's things and take a set of keys to the store, which Alan knew Brian had with him, so he could access the store without having to break in. And in order to keep Roger busy... Roger's girlfriend, Mary Sue Kitts, flirted with Brian, and she laid it on thick, and Brian was really into her. And she must have strongly gave the impression that she wanted to get together that same night because that's exactly what happened. He asked her out, and she agreed. So while Brian was occupied with Mary Sue, Alan, along with the son, and the other two members of his little crime syndicate made their way over to Franz keys in hand let themselves in and headed to the back room where the safe was located but for that they did not have the combination so they took the safe with them once they had a chance to break into it they found it contained $500 in cash and $10,000 in money orders so the various accomplices went to a number of check cashing locations scattered around Southern California and redeemed those money orders and all was good, everyone got paid, and the Shaletowitzes were none the wiser. But Mary Sue began feeling pangs of guilt over her role in the robbery. She ended up confessing to Brian how she had manipulated him into going out with her, that it went back to the invite to go swimming, how Alan's cronies wiped his keys while she was coming on to him, And while they were on their date, later that evening, they let themselves into the family store and took their safe. Brian, wanting confirmation from his supposed friend, confronted Roger and asked him, Did you guys do that? And Roger was like, Yeah, dude, we did. It was his dad's gang that carried out the robbery. As soon as Roger found out that Brian was aware of what went down, he went straight to his dad to let him know. Mary Sue ratted them out. Clarence Ray Allen told his son that he was going to handle Mary Sue. But before he did that, he needed to have a chat with Brian's parents before they turned around and filed a report with police. He explained that he cared a great deal about Brian and his family, that he was like a son to him, and that he would never rob their store. And then he kind of sort of started hinting around as to what really happened. And then he kind of sort of insinuated that bad things could possibly happen if they said anything about it to anyone. And just to make it clear to Brian and his parents that he wasn't joking around, Alan offered Lee Furrow $50 to pass by their home in the middle of the night and open fire with his gun. But there was still the matter of Mary Sue Kitts. Alan gathered up his gang to sit down and discuss the situation. He told them, she's ratted us out, and that was an egregious violation of their most sacred rule, no snitching. And in order to send the message that Alan was serious when he set up that rule, Mary Sue had to be eliminated. So Alan put it to a vote. What should happen to her? They all agreed that she needed to go. And so Alan, like in everything else that he did, he came up with a clever scheme, or at least he thought it was clever. The easiest, least messy way to get rid of Mary Sue would be to slip her some poison. They knew Mary Sue liked to drink and she liked to do drugs, so they set up this whole thing to go down at a party. And the party would be hosted by Alan's then-girlfriend, a woman named Shirley Doquel, And while this party was going on, Lee Furrow would be tasked with supplying Mary Sue with pills. Not really clear what he was going to tell her that they were, but he was going to tell her that he wanted to get high. But he wasn't going to get her high. He was going to get her dead. Those pills were cyanide. Now, Lee Furrow, despite all that we might think of the guy as of now... At the time, it's been reported that he really didn't want to kill Mary Sue. She was only 17, and a tiny little thing, and it didn't sit well with him. And Alan's girlfriend, Shirley, too, was like, I really don't want to have anything to do with this. Like, if you want to kill her, fine, just not at my house. Both Shirley and Lee Ferrell protested the killing of Mary Sue, and it took some time, but Alan was able to talk Shirley into going along, But Lee Furrow still continued to hesitate. Eventually, Alan had enough of Furrow acting like a big baby and finally gave him an ultimatum. Do this or you're going to end up dead too. Alan was going to have Mary Sue killed whether Furrow agreed to go along with it or not. The question was, is Furrow going to be killed along with her? So purportedly, under that threat, Furrow said he would do it. So Mary Sue had shown up at the party and it didn't take long for Furrow along with an accomplice to ask her if she wanted to get high. He had some pills. She turned him down. She wasn't really feeling like getting high that night. She preferred wine with her drugs and as it were, there wasn't any wine to be had. So Furrow and his buddy weren't sure where to go from there. They called up Alan and by this time, he was already fed up with everything. Mary Sue, Lee Furrow, his ineptness. Alan just snapped at them. Do what you got to do to get rid of this girl. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. They tried again to persuade Mary Sue to get high with them. But again, she said, thanks, but no thanks. So they called up Alan again. And by this time, he was irate. He was thinking, why can't these idiots just think of something on the fly? Just figure this out. Alan headed over to the apartment where the party was being held and Furrow met him outside. He got in his face and said, Just get this done. Whatever you got to do, just do it. Alan was going to sit outside the apartment and wait. Either one of two things was going to happen. Mary Sue dies or Furrow dies. That's how this night is going to end. Furrow went back into the party and eventually found an opportunity to pull Mary aside from the rest of the guests. And as soon as he had a chance, he began his attack by wrapping his hands around her neck and strangling her. While he was in the middle of this, the phone rang, so he let up for a moment. Mary came to momentarily, struggling for air. Alan demanded to know if it was done, and Furrow said not yet. Alan said, finish her off, which Furrow did. So they loaded up Mary Sue into one of their vehicles and headed over to a nearby canal. It was there Lee Furrow, using a knife, dismembered Mary Sue's body. He wrapped the various pieces of her into bags and, along with some heavy stones to weigh the bags down, one by one dropped them into the canal. Mary Sue's body was never recovered. So, following that, Allen laid low for a while, but eventually continued on his crime spree. And Lee Furl was still a part of his gang. They started targeting Kmarts for robberies, and eventually, in March of 1977, it all caught up with them when they were arrested while attempting to rob a Visalia, California Kmart. One of Allen's new recruits, who was somewhat inexperienced, ended up shooting someone, and following this, law enforcement quickly rushed to the scene and were able to take Allen and a few of his accomplices into custody. He was eventually convicted on the robbery charges. But then, with him in jail, the members of his crime syndicate, they no longer really had any loyalty to Allen. So they began opening up about Mary Sue's murder, including Lee Furrow. Allen was eventually tried and convicted of her murder, and in return for his testimony, Lee Furrow pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was eventually released. Now, Clarence Ray Allen from prison continued to order hits on people who had done him wrong. His whole story is pretty complicated and convoluted and best save for another day because I do want to get back to his possible connection with the Ryans. But Allen would eventually go on to be sentenced to death for subsequent murders. But as for Lee Furrow, he was out and free. Was he still in contact with Clarence Ray Allen? We can't be certain, as it seems as though, seeing as Furrow had provided testimony against him in Mary Sue's murder, that he might be on Allen's hit list too. But there was no indication that he was. And he was the one who carried out the murder for Allen, so maybe he had earned his allegiance? Maybe Furrow felt beholden to Alan for some reason. It's hard to say, but at the time of the Ryan Hughes murders, Alan was already on death row. The nature of his relationship and communication with Lee Furrow isn't really known, but what is known is that at some point in time, it is believed that Alan had a disagreement over an Arabian horse that he had purchased from the Ryans. Is it possible that Allen had hung on to that grudge against the Ryans for all those years and used whatever little loyalty Furrow still had to Allen to persuade him to handle the Ryans for him? To collect that so-called debt? Perhaps Clarence Ray Allen insisted that Lee Furrow owed him for testifying against him. Maybe again, even with Allen behind bars... Furrow still feared Allen's ability to convince people to do all his dirty work for him. Maybe, as he did when he cornered Furrow into killing Mary Sue, he was doing the same thing in regards to the Ryans. They die or you die. Now, I realize that this is way out there in terms of theories, but considering what Clarence Ray Allen was capable of, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And we know what Lee Furrow is capable of by his own admission. He strangled a 17-year-old girl to death, dismembered her, and dumped her in a canal, never to be found. And that is the kind of guy who would be capable of doing what was done to the Ryans and Chris Hughes. How tragic the deaths of Doug, Peggy, Jessica, and Christopher And the near death of the only survivor of the massacre that night in 1984 was. And it is only made worse by the fact that I believe the wrong man has been sitting on death row for more than half his life. This was a crime that I strongly believe that Kevin Cooper did not commit. And even more tragic is the fact that the men responsible for this were never held accountable and continue to live free while someone else is paying for their crimes. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department latched on to Kevin Cooper like a rabid dog, and all these years later, in the face of everything that they did wrong, they continue to have the audacity to insist that they got it right. It is absolutely sickening that the truth has been laid out time and time again, yet they refuse to acknowledge it because it would force them to be held accountable for their deceitful and underhanded actions, their repeated violations of Kevin's civil and constitutional rights, their racism, their destruction of critical evidence, along with the planting of evidence, all in an effort to make sure they kept an innocent man in jail. Because the fact of the matter is, That this case has been so corrupted and so tainted that if and when Kevin Cooper finally wins his freedom, it is likely that nobody is ever going to be held accountable for the deaths of these four people. Doug, Peggy, Jessica, Christopher and Josh deserve justice. And I hate to break it to them, but they have not gotten it. Josh knew it, too, when he lay in that hospital bed. His grandmother, Mary, she knew it, too. She knew that the wrong man was paying for what was done to her family. And sadly, Mary never lived to see the day that real and actual justice was served, as she passed away in 2008 at the age of 93. Our justice system allowed Mary to go to her grave knowing deep in her heart that her family and her only surviving grandson did not get justice. And there are no words to describe how heart-wrenching it is to know that we, us, this system, this state, those in law enforcement, judges, the jury, prosecutors, and everybody in between, that we are all responsible for doing that to Mary. And she hung on, too. For a long time, 93 years old, she waited and we let her down. But it still matters because Kevin Cooper's life matters in all this, too. Whether you agree with me or not, there was just way too much that went wrong in the conviction of Kevin Cooper for any of us to be comfortable with him continuing to be on death row. And should Kevin pass away in prison, then the state of California shall have one more person's blood in the case of the Chino Hills massacre on their hands. And that brings this California Dreaming series, The Tale of the 11th Man to a close. I would encourage you to come on over to the Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we have covered, we share our thoughts and opinions, and I definitely would like to know yours on this one. Not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to. Documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes. Please come on over and share. You can also go visit the show's Facebook page. Like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pod and on Instagram at Pod. And this week, I would like to wish the following dreamers a very happy birthday. Anastasia N. on September 22nd, Thomas M. on the 24th, Julie H. on the 26th, and one of your Facebook admins, Crystal M. on the 27th, and Jennifer H. on the 28th. California Dripping is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. There are a couple of new California Jimmy designs. You can get coffee mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, all sorts of stuff to represent your favorite true crime podcast. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.